Well, would you turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's on page 706 in the pew Bible in front of you. 2 Peter chapter 3. We continue in our study of Second Peter. We come to the final chapter, and uh, I'm looking forward to going through this section with you. Second Peter chapter three. We're going to be looking at verses one through ten this morning. One through ten. So, if you found your place, if you will stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God, as we look at Second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse one and going through verse ten this morning. This is what the Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to church even today. He writes, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit will open our eyes to see and understand the beauties of what Peter is writing here. And I pray that we will be convicted. And I pray that we will also be stirred up by way of reminder to remember and to obey. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grown-ups, do you remember what it was like waiting for Christmas morning when you were little? I do. Um, we'd often have an advent calendar to count down the days of December. We'd open up the little door and we would eat the chocolate that was inside. And as we were counting down the days of the month, the days seemed interminable. December became the month where each week now seemed to contain 10 days instead of seven, and those 10 days felt like 36 hours instead of the usual 24. There were school Christmas programs, and when will the semester ever end, and there were church cantatas, and will the day ever arrive, and then finally Christmas Eve, right? Christmas Eve, the longest night of the year for children. My sister and I uh, usually couldn't sleep, and so at two in the morning, we would sneak into the living room, peek under the tree, or peek into our stockings. Uh, Julia's mother, she avoided that because she would block the hallway or the staircase so that Julia and her brother couldn't sneak around in the middle of the night. But this sneaking, it only made it worse because now we, we've got a little taste of what's waiting for us, and we have to wait for mom and dad to wake up. Right? 
and it's always felt like my parents wanted to sleep in on Christmas morning, even though in reality it, it probably was only about 7 o'clock in the morning when they'd get up. Oh, but finally, finally, Christmas morning. After all that waiting, we finally get to open gifts, and we get to play with new toys, and we get to see family, and we get to eat tons of food. And then, as long as that wait was, the day is gone in a flash, and it's back to waiting again. When I was six or seven, I didn't think Christmas would ever get here. And now as an adult, the days and weeks, they just seem to race by. By the way, parents, there are only 230 days until Christmas. Just wanted to give you a heads up. <laughs> when we were young, we were so anxious for Christmas. It, it was such an exciting time. We knew that gifts were waiting and so we lived with that feeling of anticipation, even though the wait was so terrible and it seemed like the day was never going to come. We still, we, we waited, and, and maybe you still feel that way about Christmas morning. Maybe you're all grown up and you still just feel that excitement and that anticipation for Christmas. And remember, there's only 230 more days. That's only 33 more weeks. There is a day in your future that will be greater than a hundred trillion Christmases. And you probably didn't even think about it last week. If you were completely honest, you might have to admit that you don't really think about the second coming of Christ very much at all. Sure, we start to think about Christ's coming whenever something major happens. There are those who have their charts and think that every new president is the Antichrist or who hear about the COVID vaccine and want to mark off a box in their end times bingo card. But when everything's calm, when everything's routine, we tend to forget. The visible bodily coming of the Lord Jesus is the next great event in redemptive history. It is the last great event in redemptive history and really in the history of the universe. The culmination of every hope. It is the Christian's blessed hope. The moment when we will be resurrected and glorified when we will be transformed into the image of Christ who we will see. And we hardly even think about it. And yet this doctrine, the promise of this future and final event is meant to have a real, practical, day-to-day -day impact on the way you live. And Peter aims to ensure that you remember that. And so as we come to the final chapter of Peter's letter, he's, he's now going to explicitly address the theological issue behind the false teachers in the church. So in, in chapter 2, we've, we've looked over the past three weeks about the danger of false teachers, that, that they're going to arise within the church and, and, and they're going to be a serious threat. It's not something to just... just push aside and say, well, that's not, that's not a big deal. There, there are going to be a real danger to the church. And, and Peter's reminding the Christians that God knows how to judge these false teachers and how to save his people. But now, as we come to chapter 3, he's going to come to the, the issue that these false teachers, in particular, are, are denying. And, and what it is is that they're denying the second coming and future judgment. And this, in turn, leads them to live lives of sexual immorality and, and greed and hedonism. They're, they're, they're pursuing physical pleasure as their ultimate goal. And it, it all comes down to the fact that they're denying the second coming. Again, this is no secondary issue. This is not a, a case of, of differing opinions. These false teachers are not simply 
debating the timing or the, the circumstances surrounding the second coming, they're saying it's not going to happen. They're saying there is no second coming. There is no final judgment. That there is no, no future life that you have to worry about consequences. The false teachers that Peter's warning about in chapter 2, they're denying the second coming, and in fact, they are attacking the gospel itself. John Calvin, writing about this passage, he says, it was a dangerous scoff when they insinuated a doubt as to the last resurrection. For when that is taken away, there is no gospel any longer. The power of Christ is brought to nothing. The whole of religion is gone. Then Satan aims directly at the throat of the church when he destroys faith in the coming of Christ. For why did Christ die and rise again except that he may sometime gather to himself the redeemed from death and give them eternal life? All religion is wholly subverted except faith in the resurrection remains firm and immovable. Hence, on this point, Satan assails us most fiercely. Here, the false teachers, they're going for the jugular. If they can get rid of the second coming, if they can get rid of resurrection and, and final judgment, then, then all of Christianity is destroyed and you can live however you please. Doctrine. What the Bible teaches about, about any topic Doctrine affects how we live. And the doctrine of the second coming is vital. It is absolutely vital. We, we can't simply relegate the Bible's teaching about Jesus' second coming to a theological curiosity or to, to something that we simply like to argue about. Jesus is coming. That is objective truth. It is reality. It's a certainty was joking with Philip before the service that even if I botched this sermon completely, Jesus is still coming. And this reality, this truth, it necessarily shapes our lives. And so we must remember the second coming. Verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 3 should remind us of Back in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Uh, let me read them both together so you can see the parallels. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. We looked at this back in February. Peter wrote, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that, after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, now look back at our passage this morning. Verses 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's saying similar things in both passages. In fact, he, he's, he states in verse 1 of chapter 3 that this is his main purpose in writing this letter. This is his second letter to these Christians. The first letter may be 1 Peter, but there's no way that we can be 100% certain about that. What we can be certain of, what, what we can be 100% certain of, is that his purpose is to stir us up by way of reminder. That's, that's the parallel thoughts. Notice what he says. He, he says in chapter 1, verse 12, that he's confident that they're already established, they already know and are established in the truth, and so unlike the false teachers who he describes in chapter 2, verse 13, as those who revel in their deceptions, he's stirring up the believer's sincere mind in chapter 3, verse 1. And yet he is still very much aware of these Christians' need to be stirred up so that they might remember. I'm not going to re-preach the sermon from chapter 1. Somebody say amen. But... 
let me remind you a little bit of what, what I, I brought out in that chapter, in that, that text, that just like Israel was prone to forget, so are we. Look all throughout the Old Testament, and you'll read time and time again, and Israel forgot. We're just like that. And if Peter felt the need to remind the churches while he was still alive, how much more do we need to be reminded so long after his death? We enter this stasis. And we need to be stirred up. We need to remind, be reminded of the truths of the scriptures. And that's what the content of his reminder is. It's the scriptures. In, in chapter 1, verse 12, he's reminded them of the content of verses 1 through 11, the substance of the gospel and the, the aim of Christian living, which is to grow in holiness. In chapter 3, verse 2, he reminds them to remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets and the command of Christ through the apostles. And again, there's a connection to chapter 1. We, we see that he's, he's stirring them up by way of reminder. And then we have verses 16 through 21. That's all about the scriptures. Pay attention to the scriptures. It's the same exhortation in, in chapter 1 and chapter 3. Remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. Remember the teachings of Jesus through the, uh, the apostolic word, through the apostles. Remember the scriptures. And the context is the same in chapter 1 and chapter 3. The apostles are being accused of following cleverly devised myths concerning the second coming of Christ. But Peter has seen the unveiled glory of Jesus at the transfiguration. He's, he's glimpsed a foretaste of the second coming. And so he says the prophetic word has been more fully confirmed by the apostolic witness. And you would do well to pay attention to it. It's the same idea that's found in chapter 3, verse 2. Remember the words of the prophets. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Remember what the apostles have taught you. In other words, for us, remember your Bibles. Remember your Bible. Remember what the Old Testament teaches. Remember what, what the apostles have written down for us. Remember the scriptures. And they have said clearly and in a unified voice that Christ will come. And so you must remember. And that's all been introduction. Verses 1 and 2 instruct us to remember the fact of the second coming. We need to be stirred up because that, that doctrine of the second coming, it, it just kind of floats down to the bottom. And so we have to be stirred up so that this doctrine of the second coming, it, it, it comes back to the surface and we, we remember the truth of the second coming. And now in verses 3 through 10, he's going to present to us Two reasons why we must be stirred up to remember. There's actually three reasons to remember in this chapter, but we're only, only going to look at the first two today. And we'll save the third reason for next week. And so this week, let's see two reasons why we must be stirred up to remember the second coming. Two, two reasons why it's important that we remember the doctrine of the second coming. The first one is that you must remember the second coming because there are those who deliberately want to forget it. And then second, you must remember the second coming in order to use your time wisely. So let's look at the first reason found in verses three through seven. You must remember the second coming because there are those who deliberately want to forget it. He says in verse 3, knowing this first of all. So he's, he's bringing this to the forefront of your mind. Remember this. That, that scoffers will come in the last days. And, and this term, last days, it, it becomes 
a technical term in the, the New Testament to describe the period between the first and second coming of Christ. And so in these last days... In the the period of the church, in the New Testament period, scoffers are going to come in these last days. They were in Peter's time. They're going to be in our time. They're going to be in the future. Scoffers are going to come with scoffing. Now, who are these people who want to forget the second coming? Well, it's obviously the false teachers of chapter 2 and those who follow them. Peter here calls them scoffers. Now, what is a scoffer? I like Calvin's definition. He says a scoffer, scoffers are those who seek to appear witty by showing contempt to God. They think that they're being witty. They think they're being being clever. And all they're doing is they're showing contempt to God. They're they're blaspheming, as we're reminded in chapter 2. They're irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They will be destroyed in their destruction. They think they're so clever. They think they've got it all figured out. They they probably even have some some catchy little lines, some zingers that they think, these are going to kill this doctrine right here so that we can go do whatever we want. But all they're doing is that they're showing contempt to God. And what are they scoffing about? They're scoffing about the second coming. Know this first of all. The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? Now this this is curious, and I think we should take note of it. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his perusia? This is a, a, a technical term that, that refers to the second coming. We're talking about Jesus' physical, visible second coming. And they, the, the scoffers are saying, where is he? <laughs> I thought he was going to be here. What, what's the holdup? What's taking so long? And what's so curious is that Peter is writing this no later than 68 AD. He's writing no more than than about 35 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And these false teachers are saying, we've waited and he hasn't come. Guess it was all a lie. Now, if that was the case after 35 years, then you can bet that there are scoffers after 2,000 years. You're going to encounter this argument. The argument goes like this. The apostles people like Peter. They claim that Jesus is coming back to judge the world. It's been a long time and no Jesus. This this is an argument of an unbelieving world. Don't be surprised when you you hear this argument because it's the same argument that's been used for 2,000 years. They used it in Peter's day. They're going to use it in our day. You're going to encounter people that say, look, this is all just a myth. This is all just made up. This is fairy tales. Jesus said he was going to come back. It's been 2,000 years. How, How long are you expected to wait Don't be surprised because they were already saying it 35 years after he left. On top of that, these scoffers are saying, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The fathers are probably referencing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Since they died, the world's been going on as usual. No no world-threatening cataclysms. So there probably won't be one in the future. Pretty straightforward argument. But Peter says in verse 5 that they are deliberately overlooking, and that word can be translated as forgetting, they are deliberately forgetting something. They're deliberately forgetting something. They're overlooking a fact. And what is this fact that they are overlooking? Well, he says they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago 
And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They're forgetting something very, very vital to their argument. That is that God formed the earth out of the waters of chaos in Genesis chapter 1. The, the, the earth was formless. It was, it was void. And, and the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. It was just this, this watery ball. And then God brought these, the land out of this water of chaos. He brought, he brought order out of disorder. But God brought those same waters of chaos back on the heads of the ancient world in the flood of Genesis 6 through 8. And he goes on in verse 7 to say, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So God is storing up this present world for the fires of judgment. What he's getting at is that these scoffers, they bought into this naturalistic worldview. This idea that, that this world is simply the product of natural processes. And so there is a God, I think, for these false teachers, but he set the world in motion and and he's, he's gone on vacation, and so the world is just, it's just spinning on its axis, and it's just going through the processes, and, and there's no outside influence, there's no supernatural influence here. And so since the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the world has just been spinning along, and there's been no problems. Everything's just been going on the same way since day one. This but Peter is saying this, this world is not simply the product of natural processes. This world is not simply the product of time and chance and a big bang. He, he says that, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. This is not a natural process. God created all things through the word of God. Peter, or Paul says in Colossians 1.16 that God spoke and created. All things were created through Christ. And God destroyed the ancient world by bringing the waters back upon the heads of the wicked. This, again, was not a natural Process. This was not just some random cataclysm. God spoke and the waters burst forth from the earth and the rains came down and flooded the world for 40 days and 40 nights. And so he says that this world is not going to continue on in these natural processes forever. For one, this world is held together by the word of Christ. He he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every breath you take is because Christ is allowing you to. <gasps> Your heart beats because Jesus allows it to beat. This world is spinning on its axis, going around the sun because Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. And one day, God is going to destroy this world at Christ's second coming. The world has been judged in the past by the word of God. And now it's being stored up. It's being, it's, it's, it's being allowed to, to live however it wants. And it's, it's being stored up until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He's going back to chapter 2 where he says, if, if God did not spare the ancient world... He's not going to spare this wicked world, these scoffers. They think that they're witty. They think they're clever. They think they've got it all figured out. And one day, cataclysm is going to come upon their heads. And you might say to yourself, how in the world could these false teachers forget all of this? <laughs> Have they not heard the story of Noah and the ark? 
Are, are they completely ignorant about this story? Uh, has it just been a long time since they heard this story and so they've forgotten it? Do, do they have some kind of, of brain injury? Are they experiencing memory loss? How are they, how are they forgetting this story? It's such a, a big story in the Bible. It, it's such a huge story in the scriptures. How could these people, they're in the church, how could they forget this story? Well, I think as the scripture uses it and as, as I pointed out before that remembering in the Bible is not purely a mental exercise. So in Genesis chapter 8 where Noah and his family and the, the animals are on the ark and the world has been flooded and, it, and Moses writes, God remembered Noah, that doesn't mean that God had been daydreaming and oh, I forgot Noah was down here and he remembered that might be true for us, but that's not what's going on with God. What go, what's going on is that God is now going to act in Noah's favor. So when we're supposed to remember, it's supposed to be, you're supposed to act upon what you know. Remember his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Remember that. It doesn't mean just read it and memorize it. It means act upon it. And I think that forgetting is the same thing. Forgetting is not simply a mental lapse. They're not ignorant of what God's word says. They're, they're, not, they're not forgetting that the story of Noah and the ark are in the Bible. Peter says in verse 5, they are deliberately forgetting. That, that word is willful. They're, they are willfully, they are deliberately, they have, they have planned it to forget it and put it out of their minds. I was in Cub Scouts in second grade. That's the only time I was in Cub Scouts. Only went that far. And at one meeting, we learned how to make paper airplanes. We had paper airplane races. I thought that was so cool. Well, later that week, my second grade teacher had to leave the room for a minute, and I thought that this would be the perfect time to show off my new talent to my classmates. I was making paper airplane after paper airplane after paper airplane and flying them around the room, oblivious to the fact that my teacher could come back at any moment. Did I forget my teacher existed? Did I forget that she was going to come back? <laughs> no, I put it out of my mind. Deliberately put it out of my mind so I could act in this reckless fashion. I had forgotten. Needless to say, my teacher was not impressed by my paper airplane making skills when she came back into the room. In Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, David says, blessed is the man who, who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked or, or sit in the seat of scoffers. The opposite of a scoffer in Psalm 1 is the man or woman who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates upon it day and night. The scoffers deliberately overlook, they forget, they push from their minds the predictions of the prophets and the commands of Christ through the apostles. They, they deliberately forget our Old Testament and New Testament. Because in verse 3, I didn't skip that accidentally, I did it on purpose, they scoff with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They are deliberately overlooking this fact. They're, they're pushing it out of their minds, not because they, they've got some kind of mental lapse, but because they want to follow their own sinful desires. And the judgment of Christ's second coming is an inconvenience that gets in the way of their having a good time. And so they just ignore it. They just ignore it. They, they, they overlook it. Deliberately. I hope that there's no one here who denies the doctrine of the second coming. 
you, you simply may not think about it very much, but I, I hope that there's not someone who, who openly denies it. But you may be someone who, who has overlooked it, and it doesn't really affect how you live. There are many professing Christians who live like practical atheists. They, they might verbally affirm something. They may even come to church on a regular basis, but it, it has no effect on how they live. Not because they've, they've forgotten it in their minds, but they've forgotten it in their hearts. And so it no longer has an effect on them. And so there are, are many professing Christians around the world that, uh, and in America who live like practical atheists, and it's because they've forgotten, maybe even deliberately, the second coming of Christ. They want to live sexually immoral lives. They want to go out and have a good time just like their unbelieving co-workers. They don't want to be that, that, that prude. Guys, every time you turn on your laptop and you look at pornography, it's because you have forgotten the second coming. You have deliberately pushed it out of your minds because if you, if you dwell upon the, the fact of the second coming, I can't, I can't do this because Christ is coming. But I want to do it, and so I push it away. You must remember the second coming because there are those, many of those, who deliberately want to forget it. There's a second reason why we must remember the second coming. It's found in verses 8 through 10. You must remember the second coming in order that you might use your time wisely. So you might use your time wisely. Now, no doubt, 2,000 years is a long time to wait. If 35 years was a long time for these scoffers, we can only imagine them in 2021. We wrestle with Jesus' words in Revelation 22:12, "Behold, I am coming soon." What, what, what's going on here? But Jesus told the disciples that there would be a long period of time between the ascension and the second coming. This isn't something that should catch us off guard. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus has given the Olivet Discourse, which is half about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but the rest of it is about the second coming. And, and directly after talking about the second coming, that no one is going to know the, the day or the hour, he gives some parables. In chapter 25, he, he gives a parable about the, the ten virgins. He gives the parable about the talents. We don't have time to walk through these two parables, but, but I do want to, to just point out a couple of places here in these parables that help us to understand that, that Jesus had already warned about a gap between his ascension and his second coming. Look at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. Now look at verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed. He was delayed. Now remember, this is a parable. Jesus is not being delayed. He's sovereignly on time. But we have this indication that there's going to be a gap. There's going to be a time period in which we have to wait the point of the parable is stay awake, be prepared. You know that the bridegroom is coming, so wait for him. Look at verse 14. 
For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now look at verse 19. Now after a long time. There's an indication that that the coming of the master is not immediate. There is a time period in which these servants are supposed to use their time wisely. So go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2,000 years is a long time to wait. We shouldn't be surprised by this wait. And so Peter tells us in verse 8, but do not overlook, that's the same word for forget, do not forget these scoffers in verse 5, they deliberately overlook, but you in verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Don't forget this. As we are waiting for the second coming, don't forget that God's view of time is different than yours. Now, Peter's point is not to give some kind of mathematical equation. A thousand years equals one day for God. One day equals a thousand years. So there were six days of creation. That's 6,000 years for God. On the seventh day, that's the Sabbath, the 7,000th year. That's when Christ is coming back. That's not what's going on here. And those kind of interpretations, they only breed confusion. Peter is probably alluding to Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. In Psalm 90, Moses is comparing man's brevity with God's eternality. We, we, think, that, we think that 50 years is a long time. 70 years is a long time. 80 years is a long time. 100 years, that's a long time. Moses' point is that God is eternal and these are nothing to him. 35 years is a long time for man, but it is nothing to God. 2,000 years is a very long time for man. I mean, think about all the things, all the changes that have occurred in 2,000 years. It's a very long time to man, but it's just a few days in comparison to God's eternality. His time is different than ours. He's outside of time. And so what we view as a long time, God does not view it that way. He is eternal. And so we need to understand as we're waiting for Christ's coming that God's timetable is different than ours. And so we must be patient as we wait for Christ to come. We we have to be diligently staying awake like the ten virgins or, or by the, like the three servants in Matthew 25, as, as the bridegroom is delayed, as it takes a long time for him to come. They know he's coming, but in light of the fact that it's going to be a long time, they're not ready. They don't stay awake. The, the, the three servants, the master has given them money. Do something with this money that I'm giving you. Use it wisely. Be diligent with this. Live, live a, a proper life. And when it, it takes a long time for him to come back, this one foolish servant, he hasn't done anything with it. He's not ready for his master to come back. He hasn't used his time wisely. And so the whole point is that, yeah, it looks like a long time to us, It's not a long time to God. Use your time wisely because God's timetable is different than ours. And so as we wait for Christ to come, we have to be patient. We must be patient. We can't can't listen to these scoffers and say, yeah, that is a long time. Maybe this this is just all made up. Maybe maybe Christ isn't coming back. Peter says, no, no, don't, don't listen to that. Remember that That for the Lord, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is is just one day. That 
you need to be patient and wait for the coming of Christ. And that, Peter says, is exactly what God is doing. God is being patient. The Lord, verse 9, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. God's not being slow as, as some, these false teachers, count slowness. Jesus is not being sluggish or lazy. He hasn't, he hasn't fallen asleep. He hasn't lost track of time and is running late. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We forget to set our alarm and then we grow impatient when we get behind a slow driver or hit every red light. That's not Jesus. Jesus isn't trying to, to make up his time. You guys ever use a GPS and try to beat the, the destination time? That's not Jesus. Jesus would be more like Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings when Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. God's timetable is different, but that doesn't imply negligence. God is sovereign. God will keep every promise. He will fulfill every word, and he will fulfill it at the proper time. And you and I don't get to set that clock. God does. He's not being slow. He's being patient. But what's his patience for? What's his patience for? Look at verse 9 again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ah, 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 if you're a Calvinist, here's another gotcha verse. Peter seems to delight himself in causing us trouble with these gotcha verses. And so here we come across another one. This is one that if you're ever arguing with someone who's not a Calvinist, they will inevitably use this verse. So we have to look at it and understand what's going on here. If unconditional election is true, then how can Peter say that God is not willing that any should perish? Well, an easy way out would be to say that Peter says, explicitly here, he's patient towards you. And we know that Peter is writing to the churches. He's, this letter's not going to everyone. It's going to believers. It's going to Christians. And so he's writing to particular people, the church, Christians. So God is being patient so that none of the elect will perish. That is certainly true. Everything that I just said is true. He is writing to particular people. He is writing to the church. It's true that none of the elect will perish. But I don't think that that interpretation does full justice to this verse, nor to other passages in the scriptures. I think that what Peter is expressing here is God's general disposition towards the world. God's general attitude, his, his heart, as it were, is that of love towards this fallen world. So John 3.16, we don't have to jump through hoops to understand it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18 have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Verse 32 of Ezekiel 18, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, calls God's work of judgment strange and alien. Even as God judges the wicked, his desire is that they might repent. And this is important for us Calvinists to remember. God's will is that none should perish. That should be our attitude as well. That should spur us on to evangelism. That should give us a heart for the lost, not one of callous, well, if he's not elect, 
we need to have a heart towards the lost. Because God has a heart for the lost. Now how do we square this with unconditional election? Because there is no doubt in my mind that the doctrine of unconditional election is found throughout the scriptures. Matthew 11, verses 25 and 27. John 6, 37 through 45. Acts 13, verse 48. Romans 9, 6 through 23. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. And on and on and on. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, and yet... No one can come unless drawn. How do we understand this? How how do we understand what's going on here? I think we have to distinguish between God's secret will and his revealed will. And this is not a theological category that Calvin came up with. This is the Bible itself, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. He don't have to tell you everything. He's got secret things. But the things revealed belong to you and your children that you might do them. He's got a secret will, but he's got a revealed will. His revealed will is that everyone might repent. That everyone might repent. Without exception, Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is repeated in Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's God's revealed will, is that everyone who hears might come. But a secret will is that only some will be regenerated and come. And your reaction might be to say, then the offer isn't genuine. If he says come, but not everyone can come, then then it's not a, a genuine offer. Of course it is. Because nothing is stopping you. God is not saying come while he has his hand on your forehead laughing and saying, ha ha, you're not gonna come. Nothing is stopping you from coming except your own unbelief. Nothing is stopping you. There's no no wall outside of yourself. It's only you. And so what are you waiting for? If you've never trusted in Christ, come. And everyone who comes to him, he will save. And that's Peter's point. God is being patient with you so that you won't perish. Jesus has not returned, not because he's being slow, not because he's lazy, not because he's lost track of time, but because he's being patient with you so that you might repent. He he hasn't come because he's waiting for you to repent, so come. Come. Repent. Ezekiel chapter 18 again, verses 30 through 32. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Come and drink, as as Isaiah says, without cost. There's no cost to you because the price has already been paid by Christ. Christ has already died for sinners. His blood has already purchased salvation, reconciliation, forgiveness for anyone who would believe. So believe. What is the story we find within the pages of the Bible but God being patient with sinners? What what do we see time and time again? 
but that Israel sins against God and God is patient. But what is that patience meant to do? It's meant to lead us to repentance. And yet, how often we take advantage of his kindness and patience. This is what the world is doing. God is being patient with them. And what do they do? They scorn him. And they rebel. And they they turn away. They, They throw his patience back in his face. God is patient so that you might repent. And the world says, well, God God isn't going to judge anyone. God, God loves everyone. We're all God's children. And they take that kindness and they take that patience and they throw it in his face. God is slow to judge so that you might be quick to repent. Calvin again. He says, when we hear that the Lord in delaying shows a concern for our salvation and that he defers the time because he has a care for us, there is no reason why we should any longer complain of tardiness. For God, by prolonging time to each, sustains him that he may repent. In the like manner, he does not hasten the end of the world in order to give to all time to repent. This is a very necessary admonition so that we may learn to employ time aright, as we shall otherwise suffer a just punishment for our idleness. God is being patient with you. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, consider the fact that you woke up this morning. Consider the fact that you're still taking breaths, that your heart is still pumping blood throughout your veins. Consider the fact that God has not opened up the earth and swallowed you alive. Consider the fact that that you're you're here in an air-conditioned room surrounded by people who love you instead of in hell, in torment. That's God's patience towards you. He's patient towards you so that you would repent. Christ has died. The offer is is there in front of you. There is a dead Savior for sinners. And he has been raised to life to receive all those who would repent and turn to him. So turn to him. And if you hear these words and you continue to harden your heart, and you continue to throw that kindness and that patience back in God's face, all you're doing is storing up wrath. Because there will be no excuse on the last day. While there is time, come to Christ. Turn and believe and be saved. There is nothing standing in the way except your own unbelief. And so cry out, to Christ and say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Because his patience will not last forever. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord will come. It may may be today. It may be tomorrow. It could be 2,000 years from now. He will come. There's three things to consider in this final verse. The first is that he will come unexpectedly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. God is being patient with you. The world is seeing that patience as apathy. As if God doesn't care about their wickedness. We we read, Dave read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning, that, that while people are saying, peace, peace, then destruction will come upon them unexpectedly. Christ will come like a thief. No warning, no last minute prep time. So while you're here, Don't think that 
you've got another moment to believe. Believe right now. Don't, don't think you've got this afternoon or, or this evening or tomorrow. Don't think you've got the rest of your life. Christ will come and the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come unexpectedly. Second is that it will be complete. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. It's the roar of fire that's burning everything up. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. It's going to be complete. Fire burning up and dissolving even the elements. This is not localized. This is everything that you've ever known is going to be burned up in an instant. And in fire, the world is going to be consumed. There won't be any place to run. There won't be any place to hide. You can't, you can't migrate from one place to the other. This is everywhere. There is no place to hide. Revelation chapter 20 says that, that even the sky is going to try to flee from his presence. But there's no place to run. And then it will be final. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything you've ever done, every thought, every intention, it will be exposed before the gaze of the one who has eyes like flaming fire. The one who searches hearts. The one who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth with which he will slay the wicked. You must remember the second coming of Christ in order that you might use your time wisely. If you're an unbeliever, that means trusting in Christ today, this moment, before you, before you leave this room, even now. Confess your sin to Christ. Confess that, that you are helpless and hopeless, that your life is a ruin alienated from God, that, that your sin is a stench in the nostrils of a holy God, and then say, my only hope is Jesus. Jesus, save me. And believe. Believe that he died for you. Believe that Christ has been raised from the dead. Confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and you can know that you will be saved. But for Christians... For believers, Peter doesn't want us to remember the second coming so that we waste our time speculating on, on who the man of lawlessness is or, or calculating the precise timing of the rapture or, or if locusts are really Apache helicopters. He wants us to remember so that it will impact how we live today. He wants us to remember because there are many who forget and they live carelessly immoral lives. He wants us to remember in order that we might use our time wisely that, that while God is being patient that we might continue to repent and so that we might call others to repent that we'll cease living in sin that we might follow Christ that we would be eager to share the gospel with those who are perishing because we have a heart for the world like Christ has a heart for the world. Will you remember? Will you remember? Will you remember the predictions of the holy prophets? Will you remember the command of Christ through your apostles? Will you take up the scriptures and read and remember? Will you be stirred up we remember the excitement of Christmas and so we eagerly wait for it. Will we remember the second coming and let our lives reflect our eagerness? I pray that it will be so for our church. I pray that it will be so in your lives. I pray that you will remember and that it will impact the way that you live even today. And I pray that we, along with nearly 2,000 years of Christians, will expectantly pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the predictions of the holy prophets. Thank you for the commands of Christ recorded by the apostles. Thank you for their words. I pray that we will remember. And I pray that in remembering, we might believe and we might turn away from our sins and that we might trust in Christ and follow him living lives of godliness. May we be a church that has a passion and a heart for the lost. And may that lead us to go out and to share the gospel with those who are perishing. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your patience with your church. And we thank you that you're being patient with the world. But we long to see Jesus. And so we pray expectantly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But may your church be found ready. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.